Today we're going to have the first of a three-part series that we're going to start here. It's the changing landscape of an advanced prostate cancer management, what you need to know. Today's webinar actually contains the same title. Part two of this series, we present it live Wednesday, August 22nd, 7 to 8 p.m. And that is entitled Update on the AUA SUO Guideline on Beyond. So if you enjoyed today's content, you absolutely should check out Wednesday, August 22nd, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Update on AUA SUO Guidelines and Beyond. Hi there. Um, welcome to the Evidence-Based Clinical Management of Advanced Castration Resistance. Um, I wanted to welcome you and our uh, esteemed faculty. I'll introduce them as we go forward. Um, what we want to do is to cover the advanced prostate cancer state, uh, which includes that uh, non-metastatic state with a rising PSA um, to the metastatic hormone-sensitive state and progression ultimately to castration resistance. We want to describe the treatment options, including some of the really newer studies that have come available looking at advancements beyond just uh, conventional androgen control in that hormone-naive or hormone-sensitive state, and we want to be able to have you recognize how these treatments up front might impact on patient management as they progress to a more castration-resistant state. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Todd Morgan, who's an associate professor at the University of Michigan. Todd um, trained at Harvard Medical School and did his residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. He did a fellowship in urologic oncology at Vanderbilt University and has been in practice um, at the University of Michigan, uh, where he has held that position since, I believe, 2012. Todd is a, a physician, a scientist, and a great surgeon, and he has a wealth of information to share with us on initial management and imaging of advanced prostate cancer. Todd? Hey, thanks, Mike, so much. Um, well, so this is going to be kind of an overview talk. It has a heavy focus on imaging. I can now say based on the pretest that you're not going to be tested on any questions from this portion of the talk, but just stay tuned for Dr. Morgan's talk for that, but I, I think it doesn't make it any less interesting and, and really important here. Um, the learning objectives for this portion of the talk are going to be to describe the natural course of recurrent and advanced prostate cancer, think of a big picture view of the disease state, understand the role and in indications and techniques for imaging in patients with known or suspected metastatic prostate cancer, then to characterize and compare some of the current imaging modalities. And again, I think this is a really hot area that's changing before our eyes. I'm going to cover a lot of that material here, hopefully. Um, this basically, I think the point of this slide is to give uh, a sense of disease progression and treatments over time in cancer-resistant prostate cancer, basically going from M0 disease. And the point is that, you know, it, in M0 CRPC, the time period of response to therapy is quite long, and patients respond, and the PSA goes down, and then they advance over time. Um, and then, you know, then we have a whole host of treatments in CRPC from earlier asymptomatic disease to higher disease burden and symptomatic disease. And over time, those response periods get shorter and shorter. And, but again, we have a, it, just more and more treatments in those spaces as we get further along. Um, you know, the, the, the different disease states in advanced prostate cancer, or really in prostate cancer in general, go from the castration naive non-metastatic patients, and those, so those are the patients that we're talking to about surveillance and 
surgery and or and radiotherapy. There's the um, there there's the M1 that's still hormone, hormone sensitive or castration naive. So those are kind of the two natural disease states. And there's the disease states that we induce with androgen deprivation therapy. And so those are, um, you know, M0 CRPC and then M1 CRPC. And so there's kind of think of this as four different disease states, and we'll be covering all those, I think, over the course of all these webinars, but here focusing on the um, M1 hormone sensitive and the M0 hormone sensitive untreated. And so, you know, going back about 20 years or so, this is the pound JAMA paper that I'm sure many people on here are very familiar with. Um, and it's really a seminal article, and I think it's a must-read for anybody who hasn't hasn't come across it. And it gives, you know, may, maybe in some ways it seems like it's outdated data, but it is something that we can really hang our hat on in terms of what is the rate of recurrence, the proportion of men recurring who go on to have metastatic disease. So after prostatectomy, there were 2,000 patients who were followed, and 15% um, of them had a biochemical recurrence. That was about 300 patients. And what's unique about this particular cohort from Hopkins is that these are patients who did not have subsequent sub uh, systemic therapy until they developed metastatic disease. So again, it's kind of considered the natural history cohort. And if you look, the time from biochemical recurrence to metastasis is highly variable, but uh, the median time is about eight years. And then the time from metastasis to death is about five years. And so that really is quite long, and it's only gotten longer over time. And you can kind of think of the fact that only about a third of the patients with biochemical recurrence went on to develop metastatic disease in the time frame of this study. And again, eight, eight plus five, so it gives you again, that 13-year number, which I think you know, over the last 20 years has gotten longer and longer as the time from metastasis to death has been extended with additional therapies. Now, you know, not all patients are equal. Some patients have worse tumors than others, and so the predictors of metastases after um, a post-prostatectomy biochemical recurrence includes Gleason grade times the PSA recurrence, and so in, in this paper they stratify it two years, and PSA doubling time here stratified it uh, 10 months. Shorter PSA doubling time is a, is a predictor of um, metastasis after recurrence, and then, of course, higher tumor stage. Now, Really, fundamentally, was it the most important treatment after post-prostatectomy biochemical recurrence is salvage radiotherapy. It's the treatment that has a, still gives a substantial chance of cure. And so here's a study that shows um, about 50% of patients with salvage who received salvage radiotherapy after prostatectomy went on um, to have subsequent progression. And the predictors of failure in patients who get salvage radiation for post-prostatectomy biochemical recurrence are really well defined. And so those are higher Gleason grade higher PSA. In this study, they uh, use this cutoff of two. Of course, we know that earlier salvage radiation is more effective, and in general, the cutoff that people tend to use is 0.5. Negative surgical margin is a poor prognostic indicator in terms of the likelihood of success with salvage radiation. So again, patients who have positive surgical margin tend to have more or more likely to have a local recurrence and therefore more likely to benefit from salvage radiation. Patients with a shorter PSV doubling time and patients with some seminal vesicle invasion tend to continue to recur after um, after salvage radiation. My, this is reloading for me. Oh, there it goes. You know, so the other treatment in this setting for post-primary treatment recurrence is systemic therapy, and hormone hormone therapy is. Um, is often offered. We don't necessarily know, we still don't really know when to offer, when is the right time post 
primary treatment with a recurrence to initiate hormone deprivation therapy. I'd love to hear Dr. Morgan's thoughts on this particular trial. This is the TOAD trial, which was published a couple years ago. It was about 300 patients were randomized to earlier immediate hormone deprivation um, versus delayed androgen deprivation therapy. The trial took a long time to accrue. Um, it was stopped early because of poor accrual. There were a lot of issues, and so it's, you know, underpowered. But still, if you look at these curves here, it's, you know, it tends to show that at about five or six years after study entry, patients who were in the earlier immediate androgen deprivation arm looked like they had better outcomes, decreased risk of, uh, of death and, uh, and progression than patients in the delayed androgen deprivation arm. Again, I wouldn't use this study because of all its flaws to necessarily hang your hat on, um, but it, it probably gives still the best evidence in, in this space. Um, it, Dr. Morins, what, what are your thoughts on this trial? I'd love to hear. Sure, so thanks. So I, I think that the my biggest concern with this trial is that they, um, they were comparing essentially immediate to purposely delayed without really monitoring the delayed arm the way that we would. You know, when we, when we have patients with biochemical recurrence, I think that uh, most of us monitor those patients with, with continued PSA checks. And what the delayed arm actually asked for was um, essentially don't do anything for the first two years unless you have clinical symptoms uh, of a problem. So I just, I think that we would probably be scanning these patients a little bit sooner than they may have in this, um, in this study. And because of that, I think that the, um, the clinical actions in this study are just not the way that we typically practice in the United States. That being said, like, like you mentioned, um, it, it definitely is the best evidence we have. I, I would also say, though, that um, if you look, so there are a couple different survival curves here. Um, one was the all comers, and I think that's the survival curve that, that you have up. And then there's a, a PSA relapse um, population that was really um, that was really more focused on the patients that we would see, and the, and the, the it's not necessarily reaching statistical significance. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So right anyway. there, this is the all curve. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, so you know, another issue with, with this trial is that this space is really going away to some extent with molecular imaging. You know, the patients are getting different types of imaging that I'm going to get into in a second that turn patients that we think have, don't have metastatic disease into patients that we think do have metastatic disease, which potentially over time is going to change the paradigm of this. And so that, that gives me a segue to start to drill down into imaging, which is one of the key areas that we wanted to cover in this webinar. I think we're all familiar with the standard imaging methods for detection of prostate cancer spread, CT scans which have low sensitivity but pretty high specificity for nodal metastases, and bone scans, which take a lot of time. They don't detect tumors. They detect osteogenic activity. They have low specificity but decent sensitivity. Um, it, you know, it, it, the PSA goes up. Their sensitivity gets better and better, and so does the specificity. Everyone should be familiar with the AOA localized prostate cancer guidelines. These are really critical, um, briefly, they say that patients with very low and low-risk disease should not routinely undergo a CT scan or bone scan. Of course, there are exceptions, but in general, these patients really do not need any kind of imaging 
patients with unfavorable intermediate risk prostate cancer can be considered for cross-sectional imaging, either CT or MRI in bone scan. And then importantly, you know, patients with high-risk localized prostate cancer do need cross-sectional imaging, and that can be a CT or MRI along with the bone scan. Now, there are all, all these new imaging modalities, and these are getting more and more important. Um, I'm going to focus on PET-CT. Whole body MRI is starting to gain some steam, or really has gained some steam over the last several years in Europe. Um, we just don't have time to cover that. But I think really understanding the different PET molecules, what we have available, what we can actually order, what's covered is really critical right now and is going to become even more critical over the next couple of, me of years. And so in terms of PET molecules and prostate cancer, there's FDG, which is FDA approved, but is basically useless in prostate cancer. There's sodium fluoride, which is FDA approved, but doesn't have Medicare coverage. And so in general, it's not utilized in the United States. There's choline, which is FDA approved and has local Medicare coverage at Mayo Clinic. There's flucyclidine or axamin, which is FDA approved and also has Medicare coverage right now in the setting of recurrence after primary therapy with a rising, so, you know, patient with a rising PSA after primary treatment. Um, there's acetate, which is not FDA approved, and then there are PSMA, PSMA ligands. And those are, at this point, in general, not FDA approved, but so far they seem to be getting covered uh, by Medicare. So for this to work, any of these has to be tagged with a positron-emitting tracer, and that can be carbon, fluorine, or gallium, and that's what lights up on the PET scan. And so I just want to run down these different agents that, you know, help make sure everybody understands what's what and when to use each one. Um, and what their performance characteristics are. So sodium fluoride, the way that it works, it, uh, it, it, it's really, it's frankly, it's a lot like technetium in how it's taken up into the bone. It has a higher affinity for bone than uh, technetium. The advantages are an earlier imaging time and faster clearance. It has better imaging quality, but it's more expensive, and the specificity is low. Now, there are publications that have these beautiful images like this with technetium on the left, which looks a little blurry and then the sharp focus of the sodium fluoride on the right. Uh, I think it's, you know, as we sh I'll show a bunch of these types of images and I think it's important for one to consider that these are the best ones make it into the publication, um, but also that, um, that really, you know, that without, uh, without coverage in the United States, sodium fluoride has gone more or less nowhere. There are the cell membrane-based radiotracers and um, most importantly in these is choline, which um, it turns into phosphate choline, which is a key component of the cell membrane, and malignancy induces an increase in the cellular membrane synthesis, which is how this works, and that's catalyzed by choline kinase that's overexpressed in prostate cancer cells. And choline has been used quite a bit, especially at the Mayo Clinic, um, but also elsewhere, especially in outside of the United States and Europe, it's been used as well. And there are a number of studies that really delineate the performance characteristics of choline in the setting of biochemical occurrence after primary treatment. And uh, here's one example with 358 patients who underwent a choline PET-CT for um, recurrence after prostatectomy. About half had a positive PET-CT. Um, most of those uh, positive lesions were in lymph nodes. About a third of them had a recurrence in the prostatectomy bed and 29% in the bone. I want to keep that in mind, this was at a median PSA of 1.3. And you can look at this histogram that I have on here. Uh, and for any, any agent that you're thinking about, you know, when is the appropriate time to order the test based on the you know, timing of the recurrence, you can go back to one of these histograms from these studies and get a sense at what level of the PSA are you likely to see something on, on the uh, PET-CT. And so with this 
you know, with with this agent, it's really not until PSA gets above 0.5 and in reality closer to one that you start to see a high likelihood of picking something up on the scan. Now, all these agents have opened up this whole new area of metastasis-directed therapy, the idea that if you see something in the study, you can go in and zap it with, you know, stereotactic body radiotherapy or go get it with a salvage of fatinectomy. And the data on this is still really early. The likelihood of cure is low. But I think the goal at this point would be to stretch out the interval until a patient needs to start antigen deprivation therapy. And so here's one study with 60 patients where um, they had a positive PET-CT and underwent a salvage of fatinectomy. And the response rate seemed to be pretty high. 60% had a biochemical response to a PSA under 0.2. And over a third of them had no recurrence on a subsequent PET. This is a recent publication of the SOMP trial, which is an important phase two randomized trial of metastasis-directed therapy. Could it be SDRT or metastectomy? Um, patients were randomized to treatment or surveillance in the, for, for choline PET positive oligometastatic prostate cancer. There were 62 patients enrolled. And at a three-year meeting follow-up, um, the difference in the primary endpoint, which was hormone ADP-free survival, was 12 versus 21 months in the surveillance versus the treatment arms. And the uh, kappa microbes are there. And you can see that the p-value there is 0.08. I imagine with additional follow-up time, um, it might get, you know, might become some displaced significant. I, we just need to know a lot more about this space, I think, before we start doing it routinely. But um, it's definitely a consideration. It's coming into clinical practice. I'm sure many of you are familiar with flucyclidine or Axmin, which is a synthetic amino acid. It's a marker of protein synthesis. There's increased uptake into prostate cancer cells due to increased metabolism. It has minimal urine excretion and has FDA approval, uh, which is, I think, why people, you know, it, it, it's more accessible than any other agent right now. Uh, it gained FDA approval by being compared to Prostatin. It works much, much better than Prostatin, and that's been well documented. Compared to choline PET-CT, it looks pretty similar. They have similar sensitivity, which is about 30 to 40 percent, and so it's important to consider that lowish sensitivity. When you see one lesion, it's most likely there's more, and that's beginning to be uh, better and better documented with salvage lymph node infections that Often, if you see one and you do a complete lymph node dissection, there's a lot more disease there. The specificity is high and positive predictive value is high. And lastly, there's the small molecules targeting PSMA. These are totally different than Capramab, which is processin. These are um, extracellular as opposed to Capramab, which bounds or binds to an extracellular domain on PSMA. It's really specific for prostate cancer. Um, there, it can be linked to gallium. It can be linked to fluorine. Um, in this uh, figure here, it shows the difference between a PSMA scan of the same patient versus a choline scan. You can see the resolution looks much sharper with a PSMA scan. And here's another one of those histograms. And I think the important point here is that PSMA is more sensitive at lower PSA levels. And so if you're, you know, the patient has a biochemical occurrence with a PSA, say, between 0.2 and 0.5, there's a 50 to 60 percent chance that you'll pick something up with a PSMA scan that's far lower with other modalities at this point, including, you know, Axmin or choline. Um, like I said, PSMA can be down to fluorine. You know, there are lots of different agents out, um, and I don't think there has to be one winner necessarily. And so I just want to put this figure up, which gives a bird's eye view or summary of how imaging can be used in these different settings. This is adapted from a review article from the NYU group. For local staging, MRI can be considered for surgical planning, then you're doing this for distance staging, um, you know, CT or MRI for 
nolovisceral mets. If it's negative, in theory, you could consider getting a PET CT, although um, I'd say it's rarely used. And there's a trial, the OSPRI trial, which was recently uh, close to accrual, which is really looking at the space to look at the value of that uh, of PSMA in those newly diagnosed high-risk patients. For bone staging, technetium bone scans still remain the gold standard. If it's equivocal, they can consider a sodium fluoride PET CT. Um, and in the biochemical occurrence setting, either PSMA PET or cyclovine PET uh, might be useful. Uh, here's that disease state slide that um, was theoretically you know, shown earlier. Again, this is to show some of the differences between the castration-naive states that are you know, natural and the castration-resistant states that we induce. There's a whole another web webinar on the M0 disease state. The only point I want to mention here is just to try to address the question of when to image patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, it, these patients need a CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis at baseline. They should have a technician bone scan uh, at, also at baseline. An MRI or CT of the brain is important for patients with small cell or neuroendocrine tumors. And the re-imaging should be every three to 12 months, really based on PSA and symptoms. But the, the kind of the maximum window in general in these patients is thought to be about one year before they should get re-imaged. The M1 disease state is going to be covered in a few minutes by Dr. Morgan. I just want to highlight that there has been a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of trials, a lot of different ideas in this space. Um, I, I, I want to take two seconds and point out that numbers eight and nine on this list, which are eight is do we treat the primary, which a lot of us are interested in that question. Um, I think is interested as we are in the question and the thought that it might help to get rid of, you know, some of the key clones that are supporting castration resistance eventually in progression. That this needs to be done in a cl clinical trial, in my opinion, and there's a SWOG study being initiated kind of as we speak, and the SAMP trial is also going to help answer this question. And then um, number nine, which is the question of metastasis-directed therapy for patients with PET-positive lesions. Um, there are also key clinical trials like Oriole, which are going on in this space, or, and are going to give us a lot of information about the role uh, of metastasis-directed therapy. And finally, in castration, uh, the castration-resistance disease state, there's going to be a lot of attention over the next few webinars to that disease setting. We have a lot of different treatments available, thankfully. Um, there's been huge progress over the last 10 to 15 years. There have also been a lot of failures over the last 10 years, and this gives a small small-ish list of, you know, the treatments that haven't worked out. And I think we have to kind of keep in mind that it's taken a lot to get to where we are. A lot of patients participated in trials to get to where we are. And um, so, you know, we have a lot to be appreciative for. And so finally, just to wrap this part of the webinar up, um, the, the conclusions I want to give is the take-home messages are that the prognosis of patients with prostate cancer varies markedly with their disease state. The rate of progression is variable, but generally slow up until the metastatic CRPC disease state. CT scans and technetium bone scans are still the standard imaging modalities in metastatic prostate cancer. Molecular imaging is hot beyond hot, I think, and there's more coming. That question of metastasis-directed therapy remains to be answered, and, uh, and so I think over the next few years, we'll start to better understand the role of it and when and for who. Um, the timing of imaging and CRPC is largely dictated by treatment response, and so we need to um, also be cognizant of, of the potential for small cell and neuroendocrine cancers and advanced disease. And then finally, this is all a rapidly changing landscape, and I think it's phenomenal that there are all these webinars, and I'm looking forward to 
uh, hearing more from Dr. Morgans about the M1 setting. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Todd. Um, I just have a question for you, maybe two questions. Are there PSA triggers or doubling times when you're following patients with rising PSAs after initial uh, local therapy? Um, how, what would be the trigger? I know you said a baseline and some time interval, but are, is PSA doubling time or absolute PSA values also trigger points? You, are you talking about for the patient who just ha who has a biochemical recurrence after Correct. surgery or radiation and thinking about when to get a PET scan or when to get a CT scan or all of the above? I guess you're probably asking all of the above. Correct. I, I, yeah, I think there's there's really no magic number, and, and um, the the odds of a positive CT scan or a positive bone scan in a patient with uh, early PSA recurrence after primary treatment is really low. I think historically we thought, well, we, boy, we really need to get a baseline set of scans at a PSA of 0 0.4, 0 0.5. Um, but I, I think we're seeing that if we're using CT scans or bone scans, that it's just not useful. And so for me in my practice at this point, if I have a patient, so, you know, if I have a patient with a biochemical recurrence after prostatectomy, I'm generally going to recommend salvage radiation and at a PSA less than 0.5. If they have had radiation already, either primary radiation or they've had salvage radiation already, then that's what I'm getting um, for us here, typically a PSMA PET or, or an action PET CT, because that might be informative. And it's certainly going to be a lot more informative than a CT or a bone scan. Alicia, do you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, so I, I would agree. I mean, every every patient, I think, who has a, a rising PSA post-prostatectomy, um, hopefully below a PSA of 0.5, you, we send for at least consideration of salvage radiation, just like Todd said. I think that um, the challenge that we face, at least, um, and I was at Vanderbilt before here, and we had similar challenges, is having access to the scans. Like, you know, Todd has a PSMA scanner. We're getting one, but it's for research purposes at this point still and not really in clinical practice. Um, we do have access to Oximin scans, and so we use those. But um, really um, getting to the point where we have access sufficiently to these scans, I think, is going to be one of the hurdles that we in GU Oncology have to continue to struggle with a little bit. And I think part of that has to do with the lack of data really demonstrating that we can benefit the patients by finding these things early, particularly since all of the systemic therapies that we're developing uh, have been designed around trials with uh, traditional imaging. So we have, we have work to do in terms of the proof, but we also have work to do in terms of access, I think. Um, so complicated answer. I, I do what Todd does. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of the new pet imaging may be game changers in terms of management. We, like Todd has explained, often would recommend uh, salvage radiation for those low PSA patients early biochemical recurrence, but I know at some centers where they do have more access to some of the new um, PSMA scans, they might watch their PSA rise a little bit and then often may find small volume disease, say in the retroperitoneum, not subject patients to radiation because they have a more systemic course. But as Todd pointed out, traditional imaging would never get us that type of uh, level of detection. Yeah, and that's exactly when we use Axamen is to really kind of sort out a little bit better, particularly in those patients who have a higher PSA, 
um, do they have a systemic, do they have disease that's systemic that's going to really make pelvic radiation kind of just a wash? And there was a question about TOAD and whether there was salvage or adjuvant radiation in those patients, and it was a bit of a hodgepodge, but uh, it, it does seem that some of those patients did get salvage radiation. All right. Well, thank you very much, Todd. We're going to move on to the second talk. So um, Alicia Morgans has already uh, been contributing, but I'd like to formally introduce her. She received her medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania, where she then subsequently did her residency. She did a fellowship at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and she's currently an associate professor of medicine at uh, Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, we're really honored to have such a great contributor, and as is often the case when we're managing patients with this disease state, a multidisciplinary approach is encouraged, and so we really thank you and look forward to your talk. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, and it looks like it's just loading, and so while, while it is, um, and hopefully I'm, I'm not the only one who can't see it, I think it's, it's still just being loaded. We'll just um, go over uh, a quick acknowledgement that some of the slides in this deck were actually uh, made by Dr. Morgan, without the S, Todd, sitting there. So thank you, Todd, for providing some of the slides on latitude and stampede uh, with Aberaterum. So very, very helpful. Um, just an overview of what we're going to talk about. This is really a focus on systemic therapy for metastatic patients. Um, we're going to talk about chemohormonal therapy, the three uh, primary phase three trials that looked at that, the GTUG trial, the Stampede trial, and the TARDA trial. Um, we'll also talk about intensive androgen ablation, um, which in this case means ADT plus abiraterone, which was assessed in the latitude and Stampede studies. And then we'll talk a little bit about some additional data that's come out, some quality of life data uh, for charted that was referred to in some of the, the pretest questions, as well as uh, an assessment of contemporary enrollment in the stampede study in both uh, arms uh, treating with abiraterone and the chemohormonal arm. So um, an update on that. And then we'll just summarize. And certainly, I, I would encourage everybody to feel free to um, ask questions. Uh, I know that both Dr. Cookson and Dr. Morgan are watching the, the Q&A log. So if anyone has questions during the session, they will um, interrupt me and we will we'll take those questions and, and uh, go from there. So to start off with a conversation about chemohormonal therapy, as I said, three main trials looked at this. The first that was published is, the, is a French study. Um, sites were included in both France and I think maybe up to three sites in Belgium. This was the GTUG AFU 15 study. It was a phase three trial, again, looking at uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive uh, disease, and they enrolled 385 patients, and they were randomized to receive ADT uh, and up to nine versus up to nine cycles of docetaxel. And I think that's important because what was really interesting about this trial, from a medical oncology standpoint, is that there was actually an unacceptably high level of neutropenic fever and death um, in this particular study that led to the implementation of a requirement for use of Nulasta. Uh, or GMCSF, which allows us to sort of resolve neutropenia a few days earlier than we normally would. In the United States, at least, we, we rarely see neutropenic deaths uh, when we are using docetaxel, so this is kind of a, a bit of a surprise. One of the reasons we think this may have happened is because this study was actually designed um, to encourage and require, actually, initiation of treatment with docetaxel 
uh, early on after initiating the NET. So patients had to start their docetaxel within the first two months of starting their ADT, which is different than the other studies we'll talk about, which typically gives up to a four-month window to initiate ADT. And there is a question of difference of toxicity of docetaxel in the more um, hormone-sensitive uh, you know, when testosterone levels may be a little bit higher in patients uh, versus a truly castrated um, situation. But in any event, um, they enrolled in this study uh, and they found that, um, as you can see here on the left in the survival curve, this is a progression-free survival curve that ADT plus up to nine cycles of docetaxel at standard doses um, was associated with an improvement in progression-free survival as compared to ADT alone in a metastatic hormone-sensitive patient population. So a 28% reduction in the risk of progression uh, in this setting. But when they looked at the overall survival data, they did not find a significant improvement to the addition uh, of docetaxel uh, and found that there really was absolutely no difference here in overall survival. Um, so this was a decidedly negative study uh, in, in terms of looking at the addition of docetaxel. And I'll, I'll go through why this may be different than, than what we saw with this next study, which is a charted study. This is an ECOG study looking at, again, chemohormonal therapy in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer that came out a couple years after um, that, the, the GTAG AFDU-15 study. In this study, uh, 790 men uh, with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer were randomized to treatment with up to six cycles of docetaxel uh, versus, uh, plus ADT versus ADT alone, and they were followed for PSA progression and for survival as well. There was also a quality of life component and assessment built into this uh, study. Importantly, in this study, there was a stratification that was built in from the beginning because the study was initially designed actually only to enroll patients with high-volume metastatic disease. Um, this is partially because we as a GU oncology community knew that patients could be treated with ADT alone and could do quite well with a pretty reasonable quality of life. And there was some reluctance to give this patient population, particularly an asymptomatic portion of this patient population, chemotherapy, which we all, um, you know, has its associated side effects. So initially, the study was designed only to enroll high-volume patients, which is patients who had at least four bone metastases with, which at, with at least one outside of the axial skeleton or uh, visceral disease. Um, and because of accrual issues, they ended up expanding their um, enrollment criteria and allowing low-volume disease. But then there was a built-in stratification so that these patients could be assessed as such. Um, and so this was the charted study design and, and history. Uh, when the investigators looked at all comers, so looked at the entire population that had accrued um, and compared uh, the ADT plus six cycles of docetaxel versus ADT alone, um, they found that there was a significant advantage to the ADT plus docetaxel or chemohormonal treatment as compared to ADT alone um, with about a 13.6-month improvement in overall survival. So the green line on the survival curve there is ADT docetaxel, and the blue line is ADT alone, and a, a beautiful separation of curves and nearly a 40% reduction in mortality. They then looked uh, at their subgroups. Uh, as I said, they had predefined subgroups, high-volume disease, which is at least four uh, bone metastases with at least one outside of the axial skeleton or uh, visceral, visceral disease. Um, and they found that in this group, there was very clearly, again, a separation of curves with an improvement in median overall survival associated with chemohormonal therapy as compared to ADT alone. This is a 17-month improvement in overall survival, uh, a 40% reduction in mortality. 
When they looked at the low-volume disease, though, it was really pretty uh, clear that there was not such a separation in curves. This is the initial survival curve for the low-volume patients, and I'll show you an update in a moment. Um, but at this point, when, when the publication occurred, neither arm had reached median overall survival, but there, it was not clear that treatment with docetaxel was going to actually help this patient population. When we look at the updated survival curves, which were actually published just a few months ago, on the left, you could see the, uh, the patients with a high disease burden or high volume disease, ADT plus docetaxel still maintains this improvement in overall survival with a survival advantage of about 17 months still uh, in that setting as compared to ADT alone. When we look at the survival curves on the right, this is low volume disease. This was adequately powered uh, and does not show adequately powered for the for what we think we needed at least, and does not show a separation of curves. Uh, there is no clear improvement in survival associated with the addition of docetaxel in the low volume patient population. So from a medical oncology standpoint, um, in at least the way I read this data, although there is an improvement in the all, uh, all comers overall population, with the updated data really providing more mature information uh, by disease volume, I do use chemohormonal therapy for high volume patients. I do not use it for low volume patients. Um, and I would say that that is something that uh, some medical oncologists do not do because they look at the overall population or they look at the stampede data, which we'll get to in one minute. Um, but uh, I think this data is, is strikingly clear and we'll also see that we have an alternative for this patient population as well in abiraterone. So that's generally the direction I go. So why, why did we see a difference? Um, really leaving the whole high volume, low volume discussion aside, why did GTUG not show us that docetaxel up to nine cycles was uh, helpful in terms of overall survival? I think there are a couple of reasons. So number one, uh, GTUG may not have been powered adequately. And within that explanation, we can also see that uh, GTUG had uh, many fewer high risk or high volume patients. So if we look at the PSA and compare between the two studies, we could see that the uh, PSA median was uh, much lower in GTUG in the mid-20s as compared to sort of 50 to mid-50 in charted. The Gleason scores of greater than eight or equal to eight was significantly higher in charted again as compared to GTUG. Um, the high volume, if you, if you go by the definition used in charted, uh, fewer than 50% of patients had that high volume status in GTUG as compared to charted, which was 65%. Um, there were also issues with toxicity in GTUG that I think that we may have gone over the line in terms of potential benefit with docetaxel and ended up harming some patients. There were 20% 20 20 of patients discontinued early for uh, toxicity in the GTUG arm. Again, uh, up to nine cycles, a majority of those patients, the median was eight cycles, but still it was significantly more than, than in charted. Um, and as I already mentioned, the treatment-related um, depth. So, uh, and they're also done sort of at different times in our, our treatment uh, understanding where uh, many more patients in the charted setting actually got subsequent AR-directed uh, therapy and, uh, than they did in the GTUG setting. And, and we also conducted charted in the United States as compared to Europe, which also leads to differences. So I think that the, the main driver was the lack of high volume and high risk patients in the GTUG trial underpowering that portion of the study, which I think is probably what drove the data in charted. Um, but that is just one possible explanation. I'm sure others can come up with others. Um, so to, to move forward, the Stampede study is a really fascinating 
study from the UK that uh, I'm sure most of you, are, if not all of you, are very aware of. It's an adaptive multi-arm, multi-stage study uh, that is looking at many different uh, systemic therapies and other therapies. They're looking at primary treatment of, of the treatment of the primary tumor and, and other things. But um, they are all comparing with this arm A standard of care arm here at the top of the page. The standard of care in the stampede arm is ADT, and then they're able to pit that against uh, multiple different arms in this study. And the particular arms that we're curious about in this conversation uh, was the chemohormonal arm, the, the standard of care ADT plus docetaxel. So standard of care ADT was compared to chemohormonal therapy, and in the stampede study they found that the median overall survival was significantly improved with the addition of docetaxel to ADT as compared to ADT alone with a 10-month improvement in overall survival that you can see here. Docetaxel is in the red line at the top um, and nearly a 20% reduction in mortality looking at this. The patient population here is a metastatic hormone-sensitive population or a high-risk localized disease population. It's kind of a uh, my, my colleague says it's really kind of a messy hodgepodge, and there are no uh, definitions regarding high or low volume, um, but it is, it is what it is. So the, the high-risk localized disease is a, a node positive or high-risk locally advanced with at least T3, T4, or a Gleason score of greater than or equal to 8, and a PSA over uh, 40. So it is a bit of a hodgepodge when you compare that to traditional metastat, just metastatic disease. In that, they were able to do a, a subgroup analysis to look at where the benefit really was, was uh, appearing to lie, and they found that when they looked in the, the top box there, the M0 population is that high-risk localized disease. It does not appear or did not appear in the subgroup analysis, which I would say is underpowered, that um, did not appear that this group really was reaping the benefit from chemohormonal therapy. When you look at the M1 um, M1 line right below it, it is very clearly and statistically significantly falling in the favors docetaxel uh, side of that line there. And if you look at the overall um, data at the very bottom, also outlined in red, you can see that there is overall um, an improvement in survival associated with docetaxel, which we already saw in the survival curve. There was also a meta-analysis that looked at actually all three of these studies in the M1 and M0 uh, HFPC population to see if they could clarify the data more, get some more power. And in this meta-analysis, which again included charted, GTUG, and Stampede, we saw that there was an overall an improvement in survival associated with chemohormonal therapy that they said or, or equated to a 9% improvement in overall survival at four years. And clearly in the metastatic population, which is what this analysis is, seems to favor chemohormonal therapy. If we look at the M0 non-metastatic setting, uh, we are crossing the null here, which is actually a, a 1, um, not clearly and statistically significantly favoring chemohormonal therapy, and so that has not become the standard of care in the non-metastatic population. Moving on to uh, intensive androgen ablation, this is the newest data um, combining abiraterone with ADT, and this was studied in both the latitude trial and the stampede study, and these are slides uh, courteously provided by Dr. Morgan. Thank you, Todd. Um, and so we have both the latitude trial, which is up on the left, and the stampede study, which both looked at uh, the, the um, improvement that we may see with abiraterone plus ADT versus ADT alone in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. In the latitude study, nearly 1,200 men with metastatic HSPC were randomized to ADT 
uh, plus or minus abiraterone. If you look at the overall survival curve on the left, you can see that there's clear separation of the curve, that the combination with abiraterone um, is statistically significantly better, nearly a 40% reduction in mortality. That's also borne out in the radiographic progression-free survival curve that we see on the right. If we look at the Stampede study, this is nearly 2,000 men. Um, again, a hodgepodge of a, of a group locally advanced with high-risk features or metastatic disease, randomized to ADT plus or minus abiraterone, overall survival curve again on the left, um, and the blue line on the top is abiraterone. The black line uh, on the survival curve is the ADT alone, and there's a clear separation of curves and a 40% reduction in death, uh, as well as an improvement in failure-free survival in those patients with metastatic disease. So there was some additional data that I just wanted to touch on. This was addressed in some of your pre-lecture uh, pre questions. Um, quality of life was also assessed and charted. You could see here, this is the um, analysis, the unadjusted analysis using a FACT-P, which is a well-known um, measure of quality of life in the, this patient population. There is not a significant difference uh, across the board between ADT plus docetaxel versus ADT alone, except at that three-month mark, which we can see here in our mixed effects model. There is a, a worse quality of life associated with ADT plus docetaxel at the three-month mark, which is in the middle of chemotherapy, but by 12 months, there's actually uh, better quality of life associated with the ADT plus docetaxel arm as compared to ADT alone. There's also uh, an analysis in Stampede looking at uh, simultaneous enrollment of patients with abiraterone and ADT versus, uh, not versus, but at the same time as docetaxel and ADT, and they were able to do an analysis of these 566 patients. They did find that there was no significant difference in overall survival between the two arms when they did this unplanned comparison. So in summary, uh, for high-volume patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease, there does appear to be a benefit from the addition of docetaxel uh, times six. It improves overall survival in two studies and quality of life in the charted study. For low-volume metastatic um, HSPC, I do not think there is a clear uh, benefit to chemohormonal therapy. Um, I would consider data from the latitude and stampede abiraterone arms for high-volume patients or low-volume patients because abiraterone does seem to improve overall survival in this setting, and always for patients who are unfit for chemotherapy, I think it's worth considering. Um, so thank you. I know that was a, a mouthful. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That, that was outstanding. Um, you uh, stated that for the low-volume patients, you sort of have a, an algorithm that leans more towards the um, androgen ablation with abiraterone additional and for the higher volume patients, more chemotherapy. Would some of this enhanced imaging perhaps sway you differently? That's tricky um, because the studies weren't designed to use the advanced imaging. So at this point, I do not use that the imaging, um, advanced imaging to define high and low volume um, because I really think uh, we need to go with the data that we have, which was developed all with traditional imaging. Are there any other tools that you would use besides just the volume of their disease in the metastatic state that might drive decision-making towards earlier use of perhaps chemotherapy? There are, you know, there are some young patients with very clearly sort of explosive disease, rapidly rising PSA, and disease that's clearly um, sometimes even progressing early on, it seems, or not responding adequately to ADT, um, not reaching metastatic castration-resistant 
status, but seeming to slowly respond. And I think in young, motivated patients with very aggressive disease by rise, rapidly rising PSA, et cetera, it's reasonable to consider. Um, the data is pretty unclean. And if you go by the CMP data, which never you know, really went to, into high and low volume, you absolutely, you're justified. Or if you do the, you know, the entire data set, rather than looking at subsets, you're, you're absolutely justified to use chemohormonal therapy. On the you know, normal run-of-the-mill 75-year-old with you know, a single bone met, a single rib met, for example, I'm, I'm not going to use docetaxel in that setting. How about factors like pain and cost and duration of treatment? How do you weigh those? These are challenging questions. You know, also, you know, cost has lately been becoming more of an issue. Copay is a problem. Um, there used to be a patient assistant network copay uh, program that could help, it seemed, anybody get these drugs, and now it's routine that I have people coming back with $1,000 copays a month. Um, I actually tend to use more chemohormonal therapy than, than many, probably, and, and that is one of the driving reasons. But for those older men, particularly with very, very low volume disease, I, I do end up choosing abiraterone. Um, pain, Pain when you treat with ADT often goes away. So that's a, that's a hard one. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that you need to use chemotherapy to get rid of pain. And abiraterone is pretty good at getting rid of pain too. So, um, it, but it is tough and finances are becoming more of an issue now. Abiraterone may become generic at some point uh, soon. We are all expecting that to happen. And there's also data, um, great work by Russ Smelovitz down at University of Chicago that suggests that you might be able to take your abiraterone with food and have, um, and have similar PSA responses at least, not necessarily disease control, but PSA responses which implies potentially something more. Um, and so maybe there will become ways for us to get around the financial issues over time. All right. Let's look well, like there's a um, question here on the side. That, do, you want, do, you want to, do we have time for this one? Go ahead. Mike, or, um, so there's a question here asking if we have updated data on AVI plus ADT that's reached a longer median overall survival, that, no, that's reached a median overall survival, meaning have we moved beyond the 38% risk reduction? I haven't seen an updated, no, nothing since, that was just about a year ago now. I have not seen an updated uh, bit of that data. So um, this is to address one of the questions on the, the Q&A and also just a final message. I think that the standard of care for systemic therapy for metastatic prostate cancer has shifted. Um, and I, I would say um, ADT alone is not something that I consider standard of care anymore. However, to address the question, are there any patients you still would use just ADT on? Yes. So if you have a low volume elderly patient who has cardiovascular disease and it's, it's really terrible or you know, very brittle diabetes or for whatever reason cannot get the medication, cannot get abiraterone, I think that you're completely justified in using ADT. But my question is always, which of these agents can I use and then I, I kind of back down. And also severe dementia, patients who, you know, have severe dementia, I'm, I'm concerned that they may not be able to take their four pills reliably and take their prednisone reliably, which is probably more important um, because of the hypertension and hypokalemia. Um, you know, there are reasons. But really, I think we should be looking at each of these patients and saying, there's good data, which of these agents can I use? And then if you, if you have good reasons not to, then you can back off. That's a good point. 
Todd, anything, final thoughts, including um, some sure. of the imaging? Yeah, sure. You know, I think, I mean, this webinar hopefully illustrated that we've come just a tremendous way in the last five, six years. We're practicing medicine in this space totally differently than we did five, six years ago. And a lot of that is because of the clinical trials that have been able to be accomplished. Um, there are a lot more studies coming down the pike, especially around imaging, oligometastatic disease, treatment of the primary disease in patients with metastatic disease. And I think it's just incredibly critical that we continue to enroll patients in these trials, that we're not um, doing things necessarily off trial, and we could do them on trial, and we should be doing them on trial. So I think if we do that, we will, five years from now, have some new answers for some of the key questions we have now. That's a great point. Um, well, I'd like to thank um, our panel for joining us tonight. I'd like to thank the AUA for hosting this. I want to remind any of the participants that there will be another webinar that sort of takes what we've done and builds on it to the next step, which would be uh, the earliest form of castration resistance, that rising PSA, or the M0CRPC. And that webinar will be on August 22nd at 7 p.m. Um, so we look forward to those who want to continue to further their knowledge on this topic, and we thank you for your time and attention. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following organizations. Astellas, Faring Pharmaceuticals, Genomic Health, Janssen Biotech, Medivation, Sanofi Genzyme, and Tolmar Pharmaceuticals. We'd like to thank them for their continued support of our education.